Good morning, guys. It is great to be with you this morning. Um, as we just read uh, together, Luke 7, 36 through 50. If you haven't opened your Bibles, please, please do that. Um, this morning, we are coming to uh, a pretty breathtaking story. Pretty breathtaking story. It's a story that might be uh, very familiar to us, uh, depending on how long you've been reading the Bible. And it's a story that you will seem to find in every single gospel account. So there's one in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But Luke's is pretty different. Luke places this story at the beginning more of his gospel account, and it has a completely different emphasis uh, in its counting. Um, And what this is doing is it's honestly sort of holding up this mirror before us. And as we look into that mirror, it kind of stares into our soul and asks us this question. It's asking us, do you respect Jesus or do you extravagantly love him? Do you respect Jesus or do you extravagantly love him? And I think what we see here is a very clear perception of ourselves and having a very clear perception of Jesus will determine your response to him one way or the other. It's it's having that clear perception of who I am and a clear perception of who Jesus is that will determine that response. And so we're going to look at this story here in just three different parts to it. And it, because it, the way that it's written, there's these specific characters, I think, that are meant to kind of cause us to kind of reflect upon our own lives. And so what we see here in verses 36 to 39 is we see this, this loving action from the woman. We see the loving action from this woman. And then in verses 40 through 46, we see this casual action of Simon. And then lastly, in verses 47 to 50, we see this very gracious action of Jesus. So this is what we're looking at. Let's, let's look here, the, the loving action of the woman in verse 36 through 39. I'm going to read these verses here again. It says, one of the Pharisees asked him, referring to Jesus, asked Jesus to eat with him. And Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with their hair on her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. Uh, it would seem that Jesus has earned respect from this Pharisee Simon. I mean, he, he invites him over for dinner, right? And this is a, a friendly thing to do. Now, the, the difficulty here is the only way that you would eat at a table in these days is actually pretty important for us to understand, or else a lot of what this woman is doing kind of doesn't make sense to us if you're really thinking about it. And so um, you, you have to imagine this. I was supposed to have an image for you and, and failed to do that. So, um, but imagine like, you know, those old uh, high school senior photos where you kind of lay on your side with your elbow, you know, that kind of idea, right? That's what people would do. They would lean on their elbow, kind of laying down with their feet sticking out at the table. Okay. I've seen, you can go image, Google image, these kind of images and whatever. And to me, I, I look at those images and I'm like, and that just, sounds awful, like terrible. Like, I don't know how anybody ever eats like that. 
I mean, I sit crisscross applesauce for two minutes and my feet are asleep. So I can't do this kind of stuff. But nonetheless, this is how people in this day would often eat. When it says they're reclining at table, imagine them doing that. It's very different than how you would recline at a table. But so these people would do this. Jesus inevitably is doing this. They would take their sandals off. Their feet would be away from the table, right? Which is an appropriate place for your feet because they're really dirty and gross. And here's the scene. Jesus eating dinner in someone's house who's a very religious and moral person, right? He's probably not a bad guy, very religious and moral person. And now in walks this woman. And she doesn't even have a name, right? Uh, she's just the unnamed woman. But she is labeled a woman of the city. And she's labeled as a sinner. And that phrase comes up twice. Even Simon thinks to himself, this woman is a sinner. Right? So this phrase that she's a woman of the city and that she is a sinner most likely means, universally people understand it to mean, that this woman is a prostitute. Right? This woman is, is, is a prostitute. She learns that Jesus is, is spending time at Simon's house. And so a meal like this, you have, you have to get this in your mind, a meal like this is very different than a meal. Like if, if you had friends over to your house for dinner today, that's a very private meal. And so the, the idea that someone just knocks on your door and walks in would be just alarming to you. But a meal like this would actually have been pretty public, so people would kind of come and go and that sort of idea. But the woman, the woman, she was not welcome. She, she would not have been welcome. So, so her showing up was a massive act of courage. This woman didn't come empty-handed, though. She has this alabaster flask of ointment. This would have been perfume in this globular container that had this long neck that in order to use this perfume, you'd have to break the neck and you could you need to use it all at once, right? You had a one-time use for this thing. It was, it was probably very, very expensive. And so she walks in with this jar. Just imagine this lady walking in with this jar. She goes down to anoint Jesus' feet. I mean, normally you would anoint someone's head as a sign of honor, but she doesn't feel worthy to go there. She goes towards his feet. This is a sign of humility. And what does she do? Don't miss it. What does she do? She begins crying. But she is not choking back some tears, you guys. She is weeping. Like you would say ugly crying. You know, just completely vulnerable sort of idea. Tears are streaming down her face so much so that her tears wet Jesus' feet enough that he, she can wash them with it. When was the last time you cried like that? A Jewish woman would always have her hair up, never down, especially in a moment like this. So this was very uncommon. Secondly, this task of even washing someone's feet was the, the absolute lowest task of anybody in society. This was something that would only be done by slaves or at least non-Jewish people. This is humility at its finest, but then she begins to kiss his feet. Like, seriously, think about that. That's pretty gross, right? I mean, that, that's, that's nothing you and I would ever do. I would maybe kiss my children's feet or something like that, you know? But, I mean, this is startling. This woman is a wreck. She is crying all over his feet, using the most valuable thing she has to use on his feet. She has heard about Jesus. We assume this. Why else would she be there? Why else would she go to him? Why else would she do this? She's heard of the things that he's doing. She's hearing about this man, and she shows up. She knows who this is. You could tell by her response. 
I mean, here's an unclean prostitute, broken at the feet of the one who she knows is the only one who will welcome her. I think Luke wants us to look at this woman right now. And I'm just curious what you're thinking about this. Like push through maybe the familiarity of the story. What are you thinking about right now when you see her? Are you thinking this is weird? Are you thinking it's kind of messy and gross? Are you thinking, wow, this is really interesting? Deep down, are you thinking this? Are you thinking, yeah, I don't get that. I don't get that. Or do you see this woman and you find yourself saying, yeah, I totally get that. I, I get where she's coming from. Like, I've totally been there. See, we understand there are times when there are certain things that are appropriate for us to do and certain times when certain things are not. You know, like later today, I'm going to eat lunch. I'm going to have a conversation with people, I'm guessing. And that's totally appropriate for me to do that. It'd be very inappropriate for me to be eating food right now while I'm talking to you. Like you're all going to leave today and like, that was weird, right? That wasn't appropriate for him to do that. Or tonight I will go and check in on my kids while they're sleeping. That's appropriate for me to do that. It'd be very inappropriate for me to go and check in on you while you're sleeping tonight, right? That's just... That's not appropriate. That's creepy, right? I'm going to get a restraining order or something, okay? So it's, it's appropriate in certain things and not. In Simon's mind, there are appropriate things for Jesus and this woman to be doing, and this isn't it. But to Jesus, it is. But we are seeing here that, that when you are a sinner and you humbly come by faith to the feet of Jesus, the only thing that is appropriate is to show him extravagant love. This is the heart of Jesus, and the woman knows this. Do you know this? Do you know this? Well, let's look at Simon. Look at verse 40. He's thinking to himself, again, who is, I mean, what's, this guy's not a prophet. Who's, if he only knew who this lady was. And then in verse 10, it says, Jesus answering to him said, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, say it, teacher. And he tells him this parable. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil. She has anointed my feet with ointment. So Simon's watching all this go down, and he's thinking to himself, which I I love that. He's just having a conversation in his own head, thinking these thoughts. Jesus can't be a prophet. He doesn't know who this woman is, what sort of things she does. Right? He doesn't get it. And we've seen this in Luke. Religious people don't get it. Because religious people continually separate themselves from others. But Jesus and his followers, that would even be us, are called to continually integrate, not separate. He doesn't get it. So Jesus knows that what Simon is thinking, which I love that. He doesn't just have a hunch. He knows what he's thinking, just like he knows what you're thinking right now. And he says, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he answers Simon. Simon doesn't even say anything. It's amazing. 
And Simon just simply says, speak. And Jesus tells him the story about these two debtors. Someone has lent them money. One is a large amount of money. One is a decent amount of money, right? They can't pay back the debt, we're told. And so in verse 42, we're told that lender just cancels the debt. Right? This is amazing. Don't miss that idea, okay? If you went to somebody, if I went to you and asked for money, you gave it to me, and eventually I can't pay that back to you and you canceled my debt, what does that mean? That means you paid for it, right? It means the lender himself absolves that debt. So they were both excused of their debt. One is 500 denarii, the other is 50. This is a, a, a day's pay for a laborer. Right? This is a pretty straightforward, simple parable to understand. Simon understands it. Jesus even commends him. Yeah, you've judged rightly, right? You get the story, right? But the person who had their debt canceled is free. Don't miss that. If someone paid your mortgage off versus someone's paying your cell phone bill for the year, you'd feel a bit differently about that. That's Jesus' point. Right? The greater the debt that's wiped, the greater the impact that has on you. Jesus says specifically, what? The greater you'll be able to love. Here's the thing. When you are fixated, you guys, on other people's debts, you won't see your debt rightly. That's exactly what Simon's doing. That's exactly what he's doing. He's looking at the woman and thinking of her debt. So Jesus goes, let me tell you a story. Uh, in college, I think I've shared this with you, but in college I, I racked up about three grand in credit card debt or something. And I was just so like weighted down by that as like a 20-year-old. I hadn't taken financial peace with the Rodriguez's before, you know, so... Um, and, uh, so I had all this credit card debt and I would just, when the bill would come in, I'd feel so much shame and like, Oh, how did I get here? You know? And then one day I talked to this guy who was kind of an, a friend, kind of an acquaintance. And he just divulged to me that he owes $9,000 in credit card debt. He was my same age. And I literally was like, Whoa, can you believe that guy? Like I left that meeting thinking like, geez, this isn't that bad at all. Right. I'm comparing my credit card debt to his. And I left feeling great about my debt, you know? But his debt, I mean, Amaya's was just enormous. And Simon here, he's thinking about the woman's debt, not his. Then visualize this. Look what he see. Jesus turns to the woman, right? But then he asks Simon a question. And what does he ask him? Do you see her? Do you see the woman? I mean, he clearly saw her, right? I mean, he judged her with the log in his own eye we saw a couple weeks ago. But Jesus' question is, do you really see her? Do you really see her? Uh, Commentator G. Campbell Morgan, I think, said it really well. He said, Simon could not see that woman as she then was for looking at her as she had been. He saw her as she had been, not for who she was. I'm curious, who do you look at in the same way that Simon looks at this woman? Is there anybody that you look at in the same way that Simon looks at this woman. And this isn't really actually holding up a mirror to our lives so much as it is putting on glasses and saying, look out. Do you see fill in the blank? Do you see so-and-so? I mean, do you really see them? Not just their debt and how much better you are than them. Do you see them? Do you really see them? Maybe a way of answering this is, who do you separate yourself from? Who do you keep a safe distance from in your life? Because 
you, you think by your nearness or your association, they're going to maybe quote unquote, like ruin the good thing that you have going. How, how do you know? How would you know if you've taken on the attitude of assignment? How would you know? Well, I think there's two uh, clear applications, I think, here in this text. Just let me point them out. How do we know that we've taken on maybe an attitude of assignment? First of all, you see another person or you see another group of people as in greater need of God's grace than you. You look at somebody else and, well, they really need God's grace. That's a clear indicator that I have an attitude of assignment. Maybe another example here would be just looking around your table of association. We I mean, look at who Simon has around the table. I mean, not necessarily in a literal way. You're looking around your dinner table. I mean, maybe post-COVID you could do that, right? But, I mean, is everyone that you associate with exactly like you? Do they look like you? Do they make as much money as you? Do they talk like you? Do they think the same politically as you? Do they even sin like you? I mean, it's easy for us in our associations to look out at others and we're like, man, my associates, we don't do the, the adultery thing, the drug addiction thing, or whatever you, categories you have for people. We just all gossip. You know, we just all slander people. You know, whatever. Like, we, have, we all sin the same. Do you get what I'm asking? Do you see her? Is what Jesus is saying. Then the contrast begins by Jesus. Though Simon had invited Jesus to his home, which is a nice thing to do, he didn't give him the treatment due to an honored guest. It would have been expected that an honored guest would have been given some water for his feet. But this woman provided that through her tears. In this society, you would welcome each other with a kiss. We don't do that, right? But in this society, you do. He didn't do that. But this woman has not ceased to kiss his feet. In this society, a sign of honor would have been to anoint someone's head with oil. Like even olive oil was really cheap and abundant. Just a little bit would have been an honorable thing to do to somebody. This woman gave the best of what she had, the most expensive thing she probably owned, and she used it on his feet. I don't want to minimize the actions of Simon here, though. I mean, just compare him really quick to other religious people, right? He is respectful to Jesus, is he not? I mean, we saw in chapter 6 that the Pharisees are plotting to kill Jesus. I mean, Simon's not doing that. Simon's at least like, hey, let's, let's spend some time together. I'm interested in you a little bit. There's some respect here. He's not against Jesus, but Jesus isn't to Simon what Jesus is to the woman in his eyes. Why? Well, Jesus says it has to do with their understanding of forgiveness. And that's where the story goes, right? Verse 47. It says, therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who are at the table with him begin to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. As Jesus tells us here why these two people react so differently to him. And this is kind of going back to the heart of the question, right? Do you respect Jesus or do you extravagantly love him? And he gets at the answer here. We see that love is a response to the knowledge and experience of your forgiveness. Jesus goes on to tell Simon that this woman's sins are forgiven. 
He does not gloss over his sins. He doesn't say, Simon, they're not that big of a deal. Just lighten up. No, he says, her sins, which are many. The Scriptures are clear, no matter how many sins you have, no matter how great they are, God's great in His grace, is He? We must understand carefully here the words, for she loved much. Jesus is not saying that the woman's actions had earned her forgiveness, or even that her love had earned her forgiveness. In line with this short parable in his words to her in verse 50, he's saying that her love is actually proof that she's been forgiven. Okay, we read verse 47 saying, her sins, which are many, are forgiven for she loved much. And we read that as because she loved much. But the word for doesn't mean because she loved much. He's basically saying for she loved, or sorry, which are many are forgiven. Here's the proof. She loved much. That's what Jesus is saying. Like, it's, it's proof. So think about this. I mean, think deeply about this. This woman knows who she is before a holy God, but in light of who she is, Jesus, in light of who she knows Jesus is, she comes running to him. Right? With deep sorrow, so much so that her tears can wet his feet. She waltzes into a room that she knows she does not belong in, and she doesn't care. Because in her mind, Jesus will accept her. He won't turn a blind eye to her sin, but he will accept her. She knows she is forgiven. So in response, she loves Jesus, which is telling you something. Jesus is who she wants. He's not a means to an end. He's not like the debtor who's forgiven. And he's like, thank you so much. Now I can go on my free merry way. This kind of response indicates that the forgiveness I'm seeking It's a forgiveness I need to have in order to have a relationship with you. Her love brings a display that is extravagant, isn't it? And so he says to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Whoever loves little or forgiven little loves little. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. I wonder how many of you guys this morning come in here with pretty heavy hearts. Maybe you feel really weary, feel weighted down by your sin. I wonder what it would do to your life if you came to Jesus this morning and you just confessed that to him. And you actually could hear him say, your sins are forgiven. I wonder. I'm curious, what does it mean for God to even forgive our sin? Well, it simply means that he promises never to hold it against you. That's what that means. In other words, when forgiveness has occurred, there no longer exists any legal or moral grounds on the basis of which God might condemn you or me anymore. That's what forgiveness is. It's very unlike the way that we forgive other people. We, we seek to forgive others, and then when that person wrongs us again, that sin that we buried underneath the ground, we dig it up again, and we're like, hey, do you remember all these other things? And that's what we do with our forgiveness. And then we fight to forgive again. That's not how God's forgiveness works. To be forgiven means God promises never to bring up your sin again or to remind you of it or use it in any way to manipulate you or threaten you or justify some action in a relationship that he's taking against you, right? In other words, to have our sins forgiven means that they simply no longer register or appear on God's radar, right? They are no longer a factor in any relevant or meaningful way into the relationship that you have with him. 
Right? When we are praying, God isn't thinking, well, this woman really screwed up badly in the past. Her sins are so many, it kind of clouds my thinking. I'm not sure I'm going to listen to her prayers, let alone answer those prayers. No, if forgiven, our sins simply no longer exist in the mind of God or shape or determine or govern how he feels about us or what he does or does not do in response to us. This is why when the Bible talks about forgiveness, it says, if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive your sin and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. The Psalms talk about this a lot. It says, he has cast your sin as far as the east is from the west. He has buried it in the heart of the sea. It says in the prophets, he throws it behind his back. God doesn't put it in his pocket to bring it up again on a different day. What an incredible statement. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. As Luke tells us that this provoked a discussion among the party guests, I could imagine. And what is their thing that they're saying? They're saying, who is this? Who even forgives sins? Who is this guy? We're just eating dinner with him. Who is this guy? Jesus completely ignores them, though. It's interesting. His interest is with the woman. He says what? Your faith has saved you. Again, don't miss this. It's not that she just really mustered up all this strength and her faith was so like enormous or something and just powerful in that moment, and so she's therefore saved. He's talking about the object of her faith. We've talked about this at length, I think, since I've been here at least, right? It's the, the object of your faith that saves you, not the strength of your faith. I could feel really like, I don't know if that chair is going to hold me, but if I sit down, I had faith that the chair was going to hold me, right? Or I could feel so confident that that chair is going to hold me and sit down. It didn't matter. The chair held me, right? My, it was the object of my faith that saved me. Right? These people are wondering who Jesus is, and the woman knows exactly who he is. Jesus has the authority to forgive sins because he's God. Do you see that? And our sin is an offense against God, so it is God that we need forgiveness from. It is God that you need forgiveness from. You get this, right? Adam, if I offended you, right, if I hurt you, I don't go to Jen and say, hey, Jen, I'm so sorry that I hurt Adam. Right? Jen would say, what are you doing? Go talk to Adam. Right? Like, we know this. I, she can't forgive me for that. You'd have to forgive me for that. But this is how this works. We get this idea. Right? And this woman knows all of that. She knows her sin is an offense against Jesus. It's an offense against God. So she goes to him. She has faith that Jesus will forgive her, and he can. But guys, not only can he, he is more willing than you can ever fathom. Do you see all of your sin? It's an offense against God. Will you go to him in it? Will you go to him in it? He's the only one who is so great and beyond you. Yet if you really knew him, you, you might go to him very humbly, but you will go to him. Because you see him in all of his greatness, but you'll see how great he is in his grace. Jesus then dismisses her with what? Go in peace. That's not just a fun way to end the story. Pretty powerful. It literally means go into peace. She came in with a heavy heart. She came in with tears streaming down her face. She leaves going into peace. I'm curious if you've ever been there. Have you ever known that kind of peace? 
It's a peace that floods your soul even when everything around you feels like a hurricane. It's a peace that comes from only hearing the one that you've, from you, whom you've offended saying you are forgiven. You're totally forgiven. It's hearing Jesus say, you're good. Go into peace. Be at peace. I don't know this morning if you know Jesus like this woman knows Jesus. I mean, you might actually find yourself in verse 49 saying, you know, who is this? But Jesus says to you, if you're saying that, he says, come on in. You know, you're welcome at my feet. Come right here. Come in faith knowing that I will forgive you. I will make you whole. Do you see Jesus this way? This is Jesus. He is the offended. And he's the forgiver. And he has forgiven you by paying your debt, hasn't he? All of it. Your debt of sin. Romans 8 says, uh, or Romans, the book says, uh, the wages of sin is death. Meaning what your sin has earned you is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus paid your debt that you owed to God that you couldn't pay. And he paid it so that you could be with God. Not so we could go on our merry way, but so that we could be with God. I didn't contribute a penny to that salvation. All I contributed to that salvation is my own sin. But Jesus contributed all of his righteousness. This is the story. I want to end by reading for you um, this quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones that I thought was really helpful. And I don't have it on the screen. I just want you to listen to it. He says, I do not care what your sins are. They can be very respectable or they could be heinous filthy even. It does not matter, thank God. But what I have authority to tell you is this. Though you may be the vilest man or woman ever known, and though you may until this moment have lived your life in the gutters and in the brothels of sin in every shape and form, I say this to you, be it known unto you that through this man, this Lord Jesus Christ, is preached unto you the forgiveness of sin. And by him all who believe, you included, you included, are at this very moment justified entirely and completely from everything you have ever done. If you believe that this is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that he died there on the cross for your sins to bear your punishment, if you believe that and thank him for it and utterly rely upon him and what he has done, I tell you, in the name of God, all your sins are blotted out completely as if you had never sinned in your life. And his righteousness is put on you. God sees you perfect in his son. That is the message of the cross. I'm just curious, how different would your life be if you actually believed this morning that Jesus had authority to forgive you of your sin? And if you saw how utterly willingly he was to do it for you. How different would your life be if you believed he loves you and he has forgiven you? I bet you'd respond with extravagant love. If you want to come to Jesus, if you want to love him more, as you have to come to grips with your sin, you got to be vulnerable about it but you have to simultaneously come to grips with how gracious Jesus is. Let's pray.
God, this morning, help us to see how we stand forgiven at the cross. I know how hard it is to walk around life actually believing that I'm forgiven, God. And I'm certain that other people feel the same way. So help us to see your extravagant generosity of grace towards us. Lord, I pray that we would see how great you are and how great your grace is, but that we would come running to you this morning. And God, I pray that would even change the way that we see other people, would change the way we interact with other people. God, that you would give us your heart. We would we'd respond this morning with deep love for you that would manifest itself in even outward activity. God, that we would respond in deep love for other people as a response to your love for us. God, make us people you are desiring to make here in this city. God, make us the kind of people that you're wanting to make in our home lives, in our marriages, in our parenting, our friendships, roommates. And God, we, uh, we long to be that, but we know, God, first and foremost, that that only comes through us coming face-to-face with you and how beautiful and lovely you are God, to us. God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this story. God, I thank you not just for the testimony of this woman 2,000 years ago. We still don't even know her name, but we thank you for her and the work you did in her life and how that's multiplied into this room this morning. In Christ's name, amen.